You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about acute flaccid myelitis. Joining me is Dr. Sarah Hopkins, who's an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and in the Division of Neurology here at CHOP. So thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So as a primary care doctor, I hope I never see acute flaccid myelitis, but I do see it in the news all the time. I know it's classified as a rare disease, but the media can create a lot of panic when there's a local case. So tell me, how common or uncommon is this, and are we actually seeing cases at CHOP? Well, so across the U.S., there have been a total of 574 cases confirmed uh, since CDC first started passive surveillance in 2014. There have been some cases that we've seen at CHOP. Uh, Over that time period, we've seen about 20 cases at CHOP. So while it's in the news all the time, it really is still a very rare uh, disorder. You know, one one thing that you can do is contrast it against other more common illnesses. And for instance, influenza in the 2017-2018 season, there were 70 or 80,000 deaths from influenza as compared to only 574. Um, cases of AFM-associated weakness um, since 2014 in the U.S., so really um, much less common than something like that. So it is a rare disease, but I think part of why it gets so much media attention is how dramatic it can be. And since we've seen an increase in cases since 2014, the headlines are calling it something like a polio-like illness. Thankfully, many of us are too young to remember patients with polio, but we do remember learning in medical school about it. So what are the symptoms of AFM that are leading to make this comparison with polio? So uh, when you look at the CDC criteria for polio, they're actually very close to the CDC criteria for acute flaccid myelitis um, and involve uh, inflammation of the anterior horn cells, flaccid weakness, So this is basically a very similar disorder with the difference being that we know for sure that these cases are not caused by polio because when they're reported to the CDC, we look for polio or they look for polio rather. And the thing that brings up the comparison is this asymmetric floppy weakness that we think is associated with a virus. So, So very similar in a lot of ways. So the symptoms like the weakness, numbness, absent reflexes are asymmetric. So one side of the body versus the other, or can it be legs and not arms? It just depends. It can be one one arm and the other leg. It can be one arm only. And upper extremity only is going to be more common than lower extremities for reasons that we don't completely understand yet. Um, But one salient point, and I think we'll talk about it a little later, is that you know, it almost start, always starts in one extremity primarily and then can spread to other extremities, but the place where it started is almost always the worst place. Mm-hmm. And actually, it tends not to be associated with much numbness or sensory finding at all. And you mentioned something about a viral trigger. So the CDC says that 
Since 2014, more than 90% of patients with AFM had a mild respiratory illness or fever consistent with a viral infection before they got AFM. So are there certain viruses that we know of that are particularly high risk for this? So uh, we think that there are. Um, there is a paper actually from CHOP from the Division of Virology here um, that was published in Emerging Infectious Diseases just in August. And when we look back at cases at CHOP um, and look back actually prior to 2014, as far back as 2009, we know we had some sporadic cases here and there, and those seem to occur in years where uh, enterovirus D68 was more uh, frequent in the population as well. Um, so, and other sites have found that as well, that there seems to be association with the enterovirus D68. The proving causality is a little bit difficult because, um, as with polio, in fact, we don't find uh, enterovirus D68 in the cerebrospinal fluid. Okay. So if we did, it would make that connection right. kind of a slam dunk. Um, but generally, we really only find it um, in respiratory secretions for these patients, sometimes in stool. Um, so so the, it's really important when you're talking about uh, trying to make a connection that um, the appropriate samples get sent as early as possible because patients have the infection and then they get the weakness later in the infection. And then shortly after weakness onset, you can't find any evidence of a virus at all. So um, it's really important that people are aware that when they see a patient, they need to think about uh, sending PCRs for enteroviruses um, out as soon as possible. Respiratory or or stool or urine, not spinal fluid. Well, so we usually send spinal fluid too, mostly because we're looking to be sure there's nothing else going on, right? There are other viruses that can cause it. West Nile virus, for instance, causes an acute flaccid myelitis type clinical picture. Coxsackie viruses, some adenoviruses. So we always look at CSF. But um, where you're most likely to find evidence of an associated enterovirus is in the respiratory sample in the stool. So there are other things that AFM can look like, similar neurologic diseases like transverse myelitis or Guillain-Barre syndrome. So how does it differ from those clinically? Well, so again, um, one important point is the symmetry. So transverse myelitis gets its name because you typically have a transverse sensory level across the body. Um, and with AFM, sometimes you can get a little bit of a spotty sensory change, but it shouldn't be... Um, the same as transverse myelitis, where you have an actual sensory level. Also, the pattern. So AFM is typically um, an arm and one-sided predominantly, and Guillain-Barre syndrome is typically, there, there are atypical types, mm -hmm. but most commonly, it's going to be an ascending paralysis with sensory changes that's relatively symmetric. But like Guillain-Barre, reflexors are going to be low. Mm -hmm. um, transverse myelitis is different because, well, you can have transiently decreased reflexes with transverse myelitis when you have spinal shock. Those reflexes are going to go up pretty quickly. Okay. Um, with acute flaccid myelitis, um, the reflexes stay down. Um, and the patient does need to be floppy to have acute flaccid myelitis, so flaccid. So some neurologic conditions similar to this can be side effects of vaccines or adverse reactions to a vaccine. Is there any thought that AFM occurs post-vaccination? So it doesn't appear to, no. You know, we really think it's related to 
to a, a separate um, infection. Um, and there doesn't seem to be an increased prevalence of recent vaccines in our population at all. Yeah. Um, and that's what other centers are finding as well. And you mentioned before that we know it's not polio because you're looking for that, but also I think a lot of the children who have had AFM have been vaccinated for polio. Right. That's what I was saying. Yes. So how are you diagnosing AFM? What's sort of the process after a referral comes to you or maybe you see a patient in the emergency department? What's the first step in the workup? So what happens um, is that as, as patients come in and are recognized, and again, it's important to have a high index of suspicion because there are other things that are non-neurologic in the differential. So AFM patients often have associated pain. You know, sometimes those right. patients get diagnosed with toxic synovitis or um, e- even just a nonspecific viral infection mm-hmm. um, because they don't really want to move. Um, so that high index of suspicion is essential. Um, and then once it's on, once you suspect a case of a- AFM, uh, documenting a good solid neurologic exam, calling neurology, and actually at that point is when I would um, send all your viral PCRs mm-hmm. um, because the, the sooner the better. And then at that point, an MRI will be ordered. Ideally, um, if possible, that would be kind of a rapid protocol so we can um, get a quick answer. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes with sedation and depending on when the patient's eaten, it can take us a long time to get that test. So if there's even you know, a brief protocol that can be run, you know, maybe the child doesn't even need to be completely sedated, you know, that can get us, get us an answer, that would be helpful. We do do a spinal tap in these kits. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of we would go from there once we had the information from the MRI. And the MRI you're expecting? So the, the MRI and AFM has uh, a characteristic lesion that is um, that involves the gray matter of the spinal cord. So when you look at the axial T2 images, you'll see kind of a butterfly in the gray matter of the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. Um, and then tends to um, also be a longitudinal lesion, so more than a couple of spinal cord segments in length. And... Um, Then one other interesting thing about AFM, you know, every once in a while we get an early MRI and there's either the MRI is normal or there's some swelling and it's hard to know for sure if you're Mm -hmm. dealing with AFM or transverse myelitis. But with AFM, when you repeat the MRI over time, um, those abnormalities tend to settle out into just the anterior horn. Um, So you see just little little circles of brightness on the MRI Mm -hmm. um, if you do a follow-up scan. So the other thing is AFM, patients with AFM, particularly with cervical spine lesions that are causing arm weakness, are at risk for progression of weakness, and they, in fact, are at risk for relatively rapid respiratory compromise. Mm-hmm. So I think it's super important that if you have concern that a patient has AFM, that that's somebody, even if you're not sure, it's better to be safe than sorry and, um, and keep them and keep an eye on them from a respiratory standpoint. Weakness can progress for up to four to five days, um, but it can progress very rapidly as well. So um, just really important to keep it on your differential and keep an eye on those kids. And that's from the primary care side, another important reason why we should send these children to an emergency department for an evaluation, because obviously we're not going to watch for respiratory compromise in the primary care setting or right, exactly. patient's home. So 
on that note, there's currently no treatment for AFM. So what treatments are being tried and, and is there anything that's being done after the diagnosis is made? So I would say the one that's most commonly used is probably IVIG. And the thought there is that because we think that this is a virus, increasing humoral immunity as quickly as we can may be helpful in fighting the virus. Mm -hmm. There is a little bit of precedent for that. There is a mouse model um, from the group in Colorado, and they were the first ones to kind of recognize AFM in 2014. And in that model, they found that giving antibodies to enterovirus D68 early on um, was helpful in minimizing um, the duration and extent of disease. Now that's just in mice. Right. There haven't been any human studies, but you know it seems to provide some data that maybe that could be helpful. Yeah. There's disagreement about whether we should be giving these patients steroids or things like plasma exchange that may decrease the immune response. Um, but certainly if, there, if there's significant swelling of the spinal cord and we're concerned that that the swelling itself is going to cause further injury. That's a situation where we would give steroids to decrease the swelling. Um, but I think that's that's really a situation that's evolving. So there are a couple different things going on. There's a group called the AFM Working Group that's a group of interested clinicians hoping to further um, work in AFM. And then there's also a um, natural history trial um, we hope will be coming out of NIH shortly. So right. um, hopefully by following these children in a standardized way, we'll be able to get more answers. Right, great. So what is the long-term prognosis for these patients? So in general, and so let me step back a minute and say that there are um, other viruses besides enterovirus D68 that cause this clinical picture. One is enterovirus 71. Um, and interestingly, the patients with enterovirus A71, um, anecdotally, there's no good trial evidence that right. shows this, but anecdotally, they seem to do better than the patients with enterovirus D68, okay. although they present the same way at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, for the patients with enterovirus D68, they do have some recovery over time, but it's usually not all the way back to where they were. Okay. Um, and some can have significant lifelong changes to their Um, ability to move um, and walk, um, and some even require um, tracheostomy long-term. But um, then another option for kids that aren't recovering optimally is something called nerve transfer surgery, where they actually take a nerve. It's usually um, an intercostal nerve or a nerve that has uh, redundant function with another nerve, and then kind of hook it up to the spinal cord and try to provide additional innervation to the muscles. Um, and that's something that, that we're learning that sometimes is effective um, more in some situations than others. But um, So it sounds like the treatments that you mentioned that were being tried are trying to halt the progression mm-hmm. of illness, but not necessarily, you're not, you're not necessarily gaining function back with those treatments. Is that correct? Um, so the acute treatments, that's true and you know there's no we really just don't have much good evidence about the acute treatments right now those are the things that we try Um, we do know that with therapy and potentially in some cases with nerve transfer surgery we get additional function back Um, things that we use therapy wise um, e-stim so tens units and things and um, 
aqua therapy seemed mm-hmm. to be helpful, um, but really um, not holding back on the therapies is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, we sometimes have kids, you know, stop therapy for a period and then slide a little bit backwards. So really um, continuing therapy is, is essential. So what are the infection control precautions for healthcare providers who are taking care of a patient with suspected AFM? So really the same as any other patient with a cold, you know, really good hand washing. Um, You know, I would think in general there would be, um, I know here at CHOP in the inpatient setting anyway, there would be um, contact precautions of people wearing um, gowns and gloves. But really nothing beyond that. I mean, for the vast majority of people, when you get one of these viruses, you're going to have cold symptoms. Um, and this weakness is just a very rare kind of secondary outcome mm-hmm. for a few patients. So I think to summarize some of the things that I've learned. So AFM is typically triggered by a viral illness. It could be many different viruses, but we don't understand it very well. It's asymmetric and it is progressive and we do need to worry about things like the respiratory status. So for us in primary care, if we think a patient has AFM based on what you've taught us um, and the patient that we're seeing in clinic, what should we do next? So I would send them to the emergency room and if you wanna call neurology and give us a heads up that they're on the way in, that would be great too. Great, thank you so much. Where can we find more information about AFM? Since it is such a rare disease, where's the best place for us to go to learn? So um, there are two two um, organizations I refer people to. One is the CDC, you know, for the updated numbers and current state of the case definition, which is actually going to undergo a change here shortly. And um, also there's an organization called the Transverse Myelitis Association. And while they're focused primarily on transverse myelitis because AFM is in the differential, and, um, and they also look at other, other rare um, neuroimmune and spinal cord disorders. They've got great information about AFM. So their website is www.myelitis.org. Great. So um, it's really good. Some really good articles on there and some podcasts. Great. So, Thank you so much yes. for talking to us about this rare disease. We know we'll probably see it again in the news headlines, so it's nice to know what to look out for and know that we should be sending these patients to neurology to seek care as soon as possible. So thank you so much. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.